Good morning. Okay, I'm excited. We're talking now about Paul and, and Paul's theology of church. The big word for it is ecclesiology. That's the study of, of, of theology that deals with church and church issues. And so this is the overview class. I thought for the overview class, we'd do a little bit of a historical review uh, um, outside of, of uh, uh, the Bible in a sense. So I want to take you to a gentleman named Pericles. Pericles was alive in the 400s years before Christ. He was born in like 490, 480 BC in Athens, Greece. This is actually a a Roman reproduction of a Greek sculpture that was made while Pericles was alive. So this is probably a fairly accurate rendition of who he was. He was the first citizen of Athens. He was the general of Athens. So he's got that general's helmet on. And Pericles was, was a big deal even for us today. It was Pericles who made the decision and collected the money and oversaw the construction of the Parthenon up on the Acropolis in Athens, the, one of the most famous archaeological features of the world today. Uh, it was Pericles who had taken Athens and consolidated basically most of Greece under Athens' control. Uh, it was as a general that, that Pericles had gone out and conducted all of these wars. And things were really riding high. And, and he was... He was the top citizen for year after year, decade after decade in Athens until we moved to around 430 B.C. In 430 B.C., things weren't quite so good. Have you noticed in your life that there are cycles? You know, some days you're the windshield and some days you're the bug, you know, and it just kind of goes like that, right? Okay. Well, he'd been riding high as the windshield for some time, but he got involved in a war with Sparta. It's called the Peloponnese War. And Sparta was down there in the southern part of Greek, down below Corinth. And they, the Spartans were vicious people. And, and Pericles got involved in this war. And it was an extremely expensive war. It was draining the treasury. And about the same time it's draining the treasury and the Athenians are having trouble winning the war, a plague breaks out in Athens and people start dying. And so the citizenry, not knowing medicine and not realizing the plague for the plague, are convinced that these things are going hand in hand. They're losing an expensive war. Their treasury is being drained. Citizens are dying from the plague. Who must be to blame for all of that? Pericles. And so they go after Pericles. And you can go to the Athens Museum and you'll find this piece of pottery that actually says Pericles across the top. P-E-R, the R looks like a P, I-K-L-E-S. Pericles on a pottery shard. Now what is a piece of pottery doing with his name? Well, this pottery is called ostraca in the Greek. Ostraca is, was a pottery piece, a piece of pottery. And if a citizen was not doing well, an assembly could be called. And at the assembly, they could vote on whether or not to kick into exile that citizen. 
and send them away for 10 years where if they came back to the city, they, they were under penalty of death. And they would do it on an ostraca. They would take a pottery shard and write their name on it and decide whether or not to cast that vote. Ostraca. Do you know what they would do if they casted the vote to kick him out? For ostracize. That's where our word comes from. They would ostracize him. They would ostracize him. Well, Pericles was not ostracized, but Pericles knew that he was in trouble. So Pericles himself is who called the assembly together. Now, the assembly was the ruling citizenry. To be a member of the assembly, you had to be a male citizen. Well, to be a citizen, you had to be a male at that time. You had to be a male. You had to be over 30. But if you were in Athens and you were a male and you were over 30, then you were called when they called the assembly together. And it had to be called on regular basis because it was the assembly that made the decisions. Athens, after all, was history's first democracy. And this was the democracy part of it. It was the assembly. So the assembly gets called together. And Pericles is in trouble in the assembly, so he takes the initiative. And he gives this incredible speech. That basically sways the hearts and the minds of the assembly. They continue to vote in support of him. He's not ostracized. He's allowed to keep his job. He's still first citizen. He's still general. The war still continues. And uh, he dies the next year of the plague. So. There. Let's pray. No, um, that's not the end of class. So that's the assembly. Now, that's not the only time the Greeks had an assembly. They were doing the assembly thing before Pericles, and they continued to do it afterwards. But in 400 B.C., you've got the assemblies. You can go to the 300 B.C.s and read the writings of Aristotle, and Aristotle explains how the assembly works, how you have to have at least 6,000, a quorum, present to make the decisions. But the assembly is what makes the ruling decisions, the assembling of, of the citizens. And at an assembly, every citizen's allowed to say what they think. You couldn't be quieted. You were allowed to give a speech. 6,000 people show up, male citizens. Anybody who wants to say something, hey, I've got something I'd like to say. It's the start. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's democracy in action. If you continue to read in the Septuagint, which was translated, that's the Jewish scriptures translated into Greek by some Egyptians, Egyptian Jews, somewhere around 200, 100 B.C., the, 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 the translators came across a number of passages in the Old Testament where the, the Israeli nation would assemble to gather. For example, in Deuteronomy, over and over, the, the nation would assemble together to hear Moses deliver the word of the Lord. They'd come before the Lord at Mount Horeb. They'd come before the Lord at Mount Zion. They were charged to assemble together as a people. And the people would come together. So when the Septuagint translators needed to come up with a Greek word for that gathering of the Israeli nation to hear the word of the Lord, do you know what they called it? The assembly. Because they gathered together. They assembled together. It's, it wasn't the ruling assembly of Athens, but it was no less an assembly. That's just, there was a word that had been used in Greek for hundreds of years. The word goes back to before Pericles. 
It was originally a word that was used to, to assemble troops together to go out to war. Now we have a bugle call. That we're familiar with, at least in the westerns or something. I doubt they do that today on the fields of Afghanistan. No, but back then, that's what they did. And, and the troops would fall out, would assemble together. And that would be the assembly as they, they would do that. So you've got in the Septuagint, an assembly, the same Greek word being used. If you go to a contemporary of Paul's, probably a little bit older than Paul, a Jew named Philo who was writing, Philo talks about and uses that same word, assembly, as he talks about his Jewish people who would gather together or as he references Old Testament passages of the nation of Israel gathering together and assembling. And that takes us to Paul. Because Paul wrote about this as well. Paul wrote about assemblies in this, using this same word. The word assembly is ecclesia. Oh, it does mean called out if you break it apart. But the word didn't technically mean called out by the time of Paul. That's from back in the early part of the word where they'd call out the people to assemble for military duty. What the word really means is just an assembly. It's a gathering. It's a coming together of a group of people. Assembly. Ecclesia. And when Paul uses it and you read it in your Bible, it's translated church. The word church is a common Greek word that just is talking about assembly, an assembly of people, a gathering of people. Now, you may be thinking, wait, I've heard sermons before uh, of people who say, well, the church is that those who are called out. Ecclesia means called out. If you break it apart, but by the time Paul's writing, that's not really what they're thinking about. It's been used for hundreds of years at that point in time as, as a, 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 an assembly, a gathering. So if we think of church as an assembly or a gathering, we'll read it that way in our New Testament. I've put a slide up here of the amphitheater at Ephesus. You'll recall maybe in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, right? You remember Paul's in Ephesus and a riot is created and people get all upset because so many people are becoming Christians. They think it's affecting the idolatry marketplace for Artemis. And so they haul Paul and, and his brethren in front in the riot. And, and if we go and we look at the passage in uh, Acts 19... In Acts 19, um, uh, as they come together and the, the riot, if it, you can get the sense of this in verse 28. Acts 19, 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and um, Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him were urging him, don't go into the theater. Now look at this. Now some cried out one thing, some another. 
For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they'd come together. (laughs) Now, if you ever want to take a verse out of context, the Greek word here is our word ekklesia, which most of the time is translated church. But it's not talking here about a church being in confusion with most of them not knowing why they'd come together. It's talking about the rioting masses of unbelievers who, hey, there's an assembly, there's a riot, let's go join. What are we doing here? I don't know, but it's where everyone else is. They didn't realize what was going on. And the only one that wanted to go in that wasn't able to was Paul because everybody was keeping him out. Now, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they saw he was a Jew, all they did is just start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Enter the town clerk. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he says, Hey, guys, who is there that doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Everybody knows that. So, look, seeing then that these things can't be denied, you ought to just shut up. That's an impolite word for some people, but this was a pagan speaking, so I think he may have said it. (laughs) You have brought these men here who aren't sacrilegious. They're not blasphemers. If Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. We got proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in, drum roll please, the regular church assembly, gathering, ecclesia. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Because there's no cause we can give to justify this. And when he said these things, he dismissed the ecclesia, the church, the gathering. You see, it's a common word in the Greek. So Luke uses it in a number of different places here in Acts chapter 19 to talk about the assembly. That's what the word meant. Our problem is, as we start our study of church... We come to it with 2,000 years of church history embedded within us. Embedded? Is that a word? (laughs) Embedded. Embedded. As opposed to inbreeding, which (laughs) our pigs are doing right now. And we're really nervous because the mom is pregnant and we're afraid they're coming out with three eyes. But um, embedded within all of our teaching and all of our doctrine is 2,000 years of church history. And so we have a tendency to think of church in a different way. And this whole first class, our overview, is to make us stop and realize that the word church, as Paul uses it, is not talking about a building. It's not talking about a structured group. It's not talking about a denomination. It's talking, it means an assembly. It's talking about a group of people who are assembling together. That's what he means when he talks of church. 
And so I want us to look at some of the verses to try and get a flavor for this. And what we're going to start out doing is looking at where Paul writes first to the local church, the local assemblies. Let's see how he writes to those local assemblies and what he has to say. We believe that, that if not the first, one of the first letters that Paul wrote was the, the Thessalonian correspondence. And we can take the letter we call First Thessalonians and look at it. So this one Paul writes pretty early on, probably around 50 or so, maybe 51 A.D. And he starts it out saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the assembly of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, the assembly, the church of the Thessalonians. Think with me for a minute. If you can go back in your brain and think about our life of Paul class. We'll set this aside for a minute. If, if Greece is um, kind of shaped like that and it's got the little part that sticks down like that. And then you've got, you know, it comes around. You've got Turkey and... Okay, that's <laughs> terrible. Well, let's make it worse. We'll add Crete. Okay. Paul is here in Athens. Um, I mean, Pericles was there in Athens. Excuse me. Actually, Paul may have been in Athens when he wrote Thessalonians because he just left from Thessalonica, gone through Berea and some other places down through the coast. But Thessalonica is up here. Thessalonica is a Greek city. And has been. In fact, for the Roman world, they had left Thessalonica with its government, its structure in place. And considered it one of the ruling cities of, of this northern part of Greece called Macedonia. And that's up here, Macedonia. So, you know, Paul is writing to people who are Greek. They've known for all their lives what a Greek assembly is. Because the town has one. They have their ruling council. They have their uh, assembly. They have their ecclesias. They would have those regular assemblies just as assuredly as Ephesus would. And so Paul's writing to the church there and he calls the church the ecclesia. He calls the church the assembly, but he doesn't want it to be he, he, he does it in a way where he draws a very clear distinction. This is not the Thessalonican assembly of government. This is the assembly that is the church in God the Father. This is the assembly that belongs to the Lord and to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the church... Not one that assembles in the town square, but one that assembles in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a special kind of assembly. But it's an assembly nonetheless. It's, it's the group of believers that gathered together corporately in an assembly and a gathering. To them, Paul writes. And that's why if you read this letter, you'll see passages like... Look at chapter 5, verse 27. 
Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. You know, someone got the letter. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. What's it say? Well, let me read it. Well, it's addressed to the assembly. And then at the end, he tells us, you better read this. I put you under oath before the Lord. You better read it to the assembly. You know, it, it, it's the letter where he says for them to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 21st century, that's a handshake or a hug, depending on how touchy-feely you are. But he's saying, you know, greet one another. Because this is a letter written to the assembling of the church. The gathering. The church. That's what it is. Do you see how the meaning is there? It's why if we were to read 2 Thessalonians, he starts it out. Same way. Only difference is he changes one word. But to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father instead of the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way it is. That's the assembly was the church. The church was the assembly. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 in this sense. What Paul has to say about the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, In the following instructions, I don't commend you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a polite way of saying you're messing up. <laughs> In the following instructions, I don't commend you. Because when you, look at that, come together. When you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a ecclesia. When you come together as a church. When you come together as an assembly. See, he writes and uses the word church to refer to the assembly. He says, when you come together as an assembly, I hear there are divisions among you. And I, I believe it in part. You know, some of you are saying you're of Apollo. Some of you are saying you're of Paul. He said that earlier in the letter. Some of you are living high off the hog. Some of you are living low. And you come together and you have the Lord's Supper. And the rich people all sit together. And the poor folk all sit together. And the rich feast and the poor don't have anything. And some of you eat before anybody else even gets there. That's no way to conduct the Lord's assembling together. Because if you do that, you're missing the whole point of why you assemble together. So we see here, Paul uses this word assembly to talk about the local church. I mean, when he writes, he just writes about the local assembling together. Make sense? Okay. We'll see Paul also use this to talk about gatherings in homes, house gatherings, because the local assembling of churches or people or believers, when believers would assemble together, it wasn't so easy as to go down to CFBC on Strack and Champion Forest. And park in the parking lot and make your way to, to, to the sanctuary. They didn't start building specific church buildings until about the 200s that we know of. And even still they had to stay kind of under the radar. Because periods of persecution came and went until Christianity became legal in the 300s. Now there were some rooms that we believe in some buildings maybe 
that were the upper room, it looks like, from the book of Acts, was dedicated to the, the uh, assembling of saints there in, in Judea. But, you know, the churches, by and large, the people would assemble not at City Hall, not at the town square, but in people's homes. So if we look at Colossians, for example, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Uh, here we go. Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, Paul's not saying here an entire structured division of a denomination. of. A, he's just talking about the Christians who assembled together in her house. He says, and when this letter's been read among you, have it also read in the assembly of the Laodiceans. So the assembly there, assembly at the Laodiceans, this is where they would meet is be in people's houses typically, but not always. You could read about Lydia in her house in Acts. It looks like a place. If you go to Philemon that Paul writes, Philemon lived in uh, Colossae and Paul says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church, the assembly that meets in your house. The early church, now I've used it as a structure word, the early group of believers, of Christians, would assemble together with an understanding when two or more of them gathered together, Christ was in their midst. See, one of the things this needs to stir up within us, we have a tendency in the individual age in which we live in America to individualize everything. And it's true Christ died for me. And it's true I have a personal walk with him. And it's true I have a responsibility. And it's true that I am uh, 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 positionally, as Pastor Fleming explained in his sermon today, I'm positionally with Christ, even though practically I've got a ways to go to get there. All of that's true and very individual. But we sometimes lose focus of the community. Because Christ died for us individually, but he also died for us corporately. Christ is looking to work in my life, but the mystery of it is he works in all of our lives together. There's something profound that happens as we grow as community rather than just individually. There are things we offer and things we receive when we understand God's spirit works in community. This is the source of the Hebrews passage. It's the same word when in Hebrews it says, forsake not assembling together as saints as some do. You could translate that, don't, you know, you could translate that, hey, go to church. In our mentality, that's some of what that means. But, but it's an assembling together. And it happened in homes by and large back then. It doesn't happen as much in homes now. But understanding this, let's go back to the slide for a minute. Understanding that it's an assembly, understanding it's a house gathering, now gives some umph to the rest of the lessons. Because this lesson, because now we can look at some more passages that have a little theological kick to them. Okay? Well, let's start with this. Paul writes, understanding all of this. And by the way, the Corinthian passage we looked at, the Thessalonians, 
those were early writings of Paul. See, things, uh, it's fun. Go back and listen to our Life of Paul class. Because you can see Paul growing personally through his writings. Yes, the Holy Spirit is fully mature and working through these writings. And, 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 and the scripture is inspired by God. And it's what God wants it to be. Exactly how God wants it to be. But within the richness of this tapestry that unfolds. You can see the growth of Paul just as readily as you can see the growth of believers. Here's what I'm talking about. When the Spirit first comes on the church at Pentecost, the disciples know because Jesus said that he would come again and take the body to be with him, right? Well, they thought it was any day now. Their impression was, hey, the Lord's coming back. It might be tomorrow. It might not be till next week. He may tarry and take his time. It could even be 10 days to two weeks. I'm looking at Al, but I'm not going to make the builder joke about when the house will be done. But it might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be another two, three weeks. And so the early church, their response is, hey, I mean, if the Lord's coming back tomorrow, let's take everything we've got. Let's sell it. And let's use that money the best way we can for everybody, the common good, the common benefit. And let's consolidate everything and let's reach. If we knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, how many of you would go out there and try to spend your last day earning another $20 that you'll get in a paycheck two weeks from now? That'd be silly. But the church gradually came to understand that their expectation of Christ's return was one where we're told to live as if it's today. But we don't make predictions because we don't know what day it is. And so even Paul, as he's writing the Thessalonians, he's had time there. He's taught them about the Lord. And he, the Thessalonians think the Lord's coming back any day now. Some of them, by the time Paul writes, think that he did come back and they missed it. And so Paul's got to write and say, no, 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 no. You're not going to miss it. A believer cannot miss the return of the Lord. He won't let you. But that's the mentality. Now, as Paul gets further along, Paul begins to understand that it's not even as soon as Paul thought it was going to be. And so, or perhaps not as soon. And so we see Paul in later writings, like in Ephesians, one of his later letters, Paul writes about the church in a different light. Paul now writes about the church and uses an assembly, an earthly assembly of Christians here. You are a church. You are an assembly of God. You are an assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are assembling together at Champion Forest Baptist Church to honor, worship the Lord and edify each other. And the Holy Spirit is present. Now, Paul says, while that's true and temporarily, there is an eternal church that goes beyond our walls, 
goes beyond our age, goes beyond today, goes beyond our people, goes beyond our congregation, if we use that word, goes beyond our denomination, if we use that word. There is an eternal assembly of all believers that will take place before the Lord Jesus Christ. I will sit in worship with my father again. David Fleming lost his father. Eight days ago, he will sit in worship with his father again. Stan just lost a parent. Will sit in worship, your mother, right? With your mother again. And this time she won't have cancer. And we'll gather together around the throne. And we'll worship the Lord. And so Paul's able to write about this. And he's able to write about in Ephesians 3. Look at Ephesians 3. See if I can find verse 20. Verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the assembly and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is an eternal assembly. This is the assembly that Paul's writing about earlier in Ephesians when he says that, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ his head over all things to the assembly. The assembly that that transcends time and space and geography. That's the assembly for which Christ died for in Ephesians 5 where Paul's writing about husbands and he says uh, and wives and he says wives. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the assembly, his body, and is himself its savior. So as the assembly submits to Christ, when we come together, we don't come together simply as an assembly of people under Pastor David Fleming. He's a shepherd, but he is not God. We come together as an assembly of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he helps lead us, he being Pastor Fleming. But he will always point his finger to Jesus and to God. That opening slide in his Colossians series is not a picture of David Fleming. It's a picture of Jesus with the cross behind him. Because that is what calls this assembly. And that's what sets our assembly apart from any other social club, work club, religious club, political club, any other club. This is not another club. This is an assembly under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul writes of this, Paul uses some images to help. Paul uses some images to help us understand. One of the images he uses for uh, the, the, the believers who assemble together for the church is an image of a temple. And I've put the temple, a, a reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem up there. Though a lot of the times when he uses this illustration, he's writing to people who probably had never seen it and may not have ever heard of it. For example, he writes to the Corinthians about the temple because he's referencing their understanding of the temple there in Corinth, the pagan temple. But God didn't make us a pagan temple. And so you see, for example, um, this is a, a, a fun passage. Okay, now you Bible scholars out there, 
which all of you are, you wouldn't be sitting in this class. Even if you don't want to admit it, you're a Bible scholar. If you're sitting in this class and are awake, (laughs) which it sounds like 30% of you are, no, you're a Bible scholar, okay? Bible scholar alert. This is one of those passages that we don't always get if we don't study it. All right. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him because God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, Paul's writing here about the church, the assembly A lot of us read this first person, I personally am God's temple. And that's okay because Paul will say in chapter 6, you personally are God's temple. God does dwell in you personally. But that's not what he's saying here. Here he's saying you corporately, you as an assembly. This in the Greek is a plural you. You plural are God's temple. If we had a southern translation... That would be y'all are God's temple and God's temple dwells in y'all. Boy, we have an efficient language in the South. That's what he said. Hey, you're not just some local gathering of people. Y'all are God's temple. Y'all are Y'all are where God dwells. When we come together, God is here. I better be careful how I teach. Because I don't prepare these classes simply for you. God's here. Heaven help me. Literally. And that's, and Paul will use that same thing in other places. There are three other places he calls the temple, the, uh, the, the church, the temple. And those are in your lessons. You can read them. Um, but it's not just the temple. Paul says that the believers are also the body of Christ. And I've talked about that enough to where I'm not going into any detail on it here. You can go find the other lessons on it. Paul is the only person in Scripture to call the church the body of Christ. But it's a wonderful image. It's a wonderful metaphor. Christ is the head. And, and so we're the body. Now, Gwen might be the left hand. Okay, Stan might be the right hand. Mike, we're going to make him the biceps. <laughs> Lewis. I don't know. I won't say armpit, but we're the, we're the body of Christ corporately. That's what we are. And then there's a third image that Paul uses. Paul says that the assembled believers, our assembling together, our church is God's household. And it's a wonderful image. I'll fly through these because it's not anything strange to us. But let's just look at the words in light of the lesson. First Timothy chapter 3. 
Paul writes in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The household of God is the assembly. It's what we are as a community of believers. We're the household of God. And so uh, as the household of God, what do we know? Well, in Romans 8.15, we know that God is our Father. In the household of God, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God is our Father. We are children of God. We're heirs of God. God's our Father. We're the children um, um, we're told uh, the same thing in Galatians. We're told in the same thing in Romans eight twenty nine. Here's another thing. If we're children of God and he's the father in the household, how are we related? Brothers and sisters. Philippians 4, 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were concerned for me before, but you had no opportunity. Now, that's a missed sight. I needed verse 8. <laughs> Finally, brothers. Adelphoi, the word translated brothers, is, is uh, uh, multi-gendered there. It's brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. And that's what Paul calls them. Because in the family, in the household of God, in the common gathering that we are in our community, that's what we have. And we're to treat each other that way. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We treat each other like family. Because we're the household of God. Even in, in 1 Timothy, when Paul talks about appointing overseers, Paul says an overseer of the community has to have his family life in order. Because if he can't oversee his own family, how's he going to oversee God's family? So these are the images, these are the pictures. Now, what does that leave us to do in the coming weeks? Well, we're going to talk about Israel and the role of Israel and the assembly of believers. Some interesting stuff. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, a number of y'all enjoy that kind of a lesson, and I do too. The purpose. Why do we come to church? You're going to say, oh, we come to church to worship. Well, yes, we do. But Paul actually teaches something else to a much greater degree, which comes out of our worship, but it's a purpose for assembling together. So I hope to get to that. Roles and organizations. What do women do? You know, Paul says, women keep silent in the assembly. What's he talking about? The idea of this being an assembly, does it change maybe with, with time and place and culture? Do assembly rules change here as opposed to there? What's the role of women in church? How is a church to be organized? Elders, deacons, pastors, overseers? What's, you know, denominations, structures? What does Paul have to say about those things that's to come? Points for home. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. The church is not a building. It's okay to say we're going to church because we're going to an assembly of saints. But you could take every wall down 
and we'd still be in church. We could be in the middle of the baseball, softball field. I guess it's over there. And we'd still be at church. If we gather together in the name of Jesus, he is present with us. And as a community of believers, we're here. When you're in your connection group, wherever you meet, together in the name of Jesus, you're in a small church, a small assembly. To Jesus be glory in the church, in the assembly, in Christ Jesus, or to God be glory in in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May God be glorified not just now, but in eternity as we assemble together. And then we know that one day, what an amazing day that will be. What an amazing day. I don't know if you've lost a loved one near to you. But if you have, you know what I'm feeling. What a day of rejoicing that will be. What a day of community assembly and worship. If you've not lost a loved one yet, I can't explain it. Others might can, but I don't have the words for it. So I'll move on. Final point. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. If indeed Jesus died, not just for me and you individually, but he died for us as a community, as an assembly, as a church, as a gathering, as a group. If he indwells not just me individually, but he indwells us corporately. What can I do or what can you do to better relate to your church family? It may be as simple as learning the names of the people you sit by so that you can call them by name. It may be learning what's going on in their world a little bit so you can pray for them. It may be going ahead and getting that connection group started or kicking it a little bit more. I had someone come up to me and say they were in the Kadar's connection group and what a blessing it was to them. Those connection groups help us connect. And God ministers and God works there, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. So my challenge to you is, what can you do to better relate to your church family? So it's not just, hey, brother, hey, sister. But it's, how can I minister to you and show you I love you? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for reaching down. Thank you for being our father. Thank you for bringing us together as family. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and the way it it changes who we are. Thank you for this body of believers that assemble together at CFBC. Thank you for our leadership that shows love and support and encouragement at helping us edify each other and grow before you, at helping us bridge that gap. I pray your blessings on this assembly today, that everyone will leave from here enriched by your spirit, Growing closer to you through your strength with wisdom of all your perspective on their lives, problems, and issues. And with anticipation of the coming day in glory before your throne. In Jesus we pray this. Amen.